Welcome to App Talk with Uptick, where we dig into the nitty gritty of how to grow apps and games. We, spin, we speak with industry experts about specific strategies, tools, and tactics they use to find success. And we keep you up to date with emerging news and trends in the ever-changing games, marketing, and technology ecosystems. My name is Xander Acosta, Director of Marketing here at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-host... Warren Woodward, co-founder of Uptick. And our guest... Andrew Green, co-founder and CEO of Strider, and uh, also uh, work with uh, YGG as well. And the first ever returning guest to the App Talk with Uptick podcast. Did you know that? Oh, wow. Big deal. <laughs> Big deal. We're old enough to have returning guests Andrew. now. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm like, yeah, I'll be like Tom Hanks in SNL. Exactly. It's exactly accurate comparison. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, uh, so up top today, we wanted to call out an uh, upcoming webinar we're going to be doing. So uh, this is going to be a webinar on uh, Web3 games marketing strategies that we're doing uh, hosted by Singular. This is going to be on July 20th, and we're going to be participating uh, along with Mythical Games, uh, Sandbox, and Advertiser. Uh, it should be pretty fun. Probably will be a little more kind of like high level, entry level strategies for people that are new to uh, Web3 growth strategies and uh, Come join us. It should be good times on July 20th. Great. Our first section is industry insights, where we do a deep dive on industry news. Got a few articles to talk about at the top. The first one is more of the crypto reckoning. Uh, it's a CNBC article entitled FTX signs a deal, giving it the option to buy crypto lender BlockFi. A, sh a short pull quote, FTX has signed a deal giving it the option to buy crypto lending company BlockFi. The agreement gives FTX the ability to buy BlockFi at a, for a maximum price of $140 million and reportedly as low as $25 million. Even at the high end of FTX deal price, it marks a significant decrease in the value of BlockFi. The New Jersey company was companies, the New Jersey-based company was last worth $4.8 billion. The term sheet also pads BlockFi's balance sheet with a large loan. The F FTX increased a previous 250 million revolving credit facility to 400 million. So obviously this looks like more pain in the, pain in the crypto space. Um, it sounds a little bit like BlockFi was over leverage, leveraged and needed liquidity and FTX is taking advantage of that weakness. Um, something interesting about the BlockFi, well, first I'll say is I'm a BlockFi user and I know CryptoMax is going to help me for that, but I am, a, you know, I do like the incentives there. We get they hold your crypto that I plan on holding anyway, and they give you a return on that. That's sort of their core business model. But one thing to note is they had to stop accepting new deposits um, while they were working their business model through New Jersey court. So um, I've sort of always looked at these assets as high-risk assets, uh, some of those high-risk assets in my portfolio outside like some random NFTs. Uh, but what do you guys think about this specifically, or either of you users, and what do you think it means? What does it mean for the ecosystem writ large? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just the amount of consolidation that FTX is doing. It's it's crazy. They're um, you know uh, uh, they're very rapidly the most centralized owner of decentralized ecosystems, um, and uh, I, I think that this was probably a smart move by BlockFi, just seeing what happened to some of their competitors recently. I know the three three arrows, three arrows capital. Uh, becoming illiquid uh, has really messed up a number of these lending platforms. Um, and I know BlockFi, I think it was estimated that they lost about um, 80 million related to uh, the, the three, arrows, three arrows capital becoming illiquid. So it's good that they're taking these proactive, proactive measures and they haven't had to like shut down withdrawals like some of the other platforms have. So 
it's pretty scary if you invested in them. Um, 4.8 billion down to as low as 25 mil. That's a that's pretty nasty punch in the guts. Andrew, what, what, what are your, what's your take on, on this move from FTX? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not the expert on kind of how these algorithmically uh, led, um, you know, either, you know, stable and yield platforms like actually provide all of their um, yield, yield and or liquidity or get liquidity. So like um, there are people that are far bigger experts, um, but, you know, it's pretty clear, right? It's pretty clear signal, like the model was not really working and everyone was over leveraged, um, you know, you could see like with some very simple kind of um, mechanics, people were able to take down a network as large as Luna, um, you know, and, um, you know, I had, you know, I had most of, of my um, liquid crypto uh, in, in Luna, actually. Um, I got out, uh, you know, uh, based on a, on a tip that I got, uh, which, you know, is not how you want your your yield uh, to be generated wow. or, or, or how you want your, your safe bets to be operating where you have to have tips to, to you know, avoid financial ruin, uh, which, which just shows kind of how early, you know, th this type of spaces, I do believe long-term in stable coins. And I do believe that kind of variable yield, um, you know, on uh, crypto is in the future going to be a mainstay still. But I think that the, ways in which those assets are backed, the level of risk that are associated with the investments that are being generated uh, obviously needs a lot of tuning, yeah. uh, you know, for the future. So, um, and, I, and I think, but I think that's that's going to be the lesson learned. And I think there are going to be folks that benefit like FTX who were, were more, you know, risk of, you know, like, and what's funny is when you look in the spectrum of like risk averse or, or risk tolerant, right? It's not like FTX wasn't, like, yeah, that's... you know, yeah, like has it been, you know, like in like some weird level of, of risk intolerance, they right. just were smarter overall and now get to reap benefits of being uh, at the appropriate place and at the appropriate scale in the market. Yeah, and I think FTX had the benefit of being profitable, like kind of wildly profitable for a while, right? And so they right. had a war chest okay. in a way that a lot of these companies didn't. Exactly. I mean, it, it definitely Sam Bankman-Fried's portfolio, though, is, has also been heavily exposed to uh, the algorithmic stablecoin uh, sector. In, in a big way as well. So it, 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 Andrew called out something important, which is that we're still feeling the, re this is still end up the category of repercussions from the first domino falling of, of the Terra Luna bank run. Um, and every week we're still seeing new impacts of that. Um, and it's it's just crazy, like how that one, um, that one bank run has led to all of these all these entities collapsing, um, all of this now potential M&A. Uh, it's just sometimes you realize how how fragile um, the whole ecosystem is, is is held together. Yes, sir, Lehman moment. Okay, well, moving from one from the Web3 uh, meltdown to the mobile meltdown, uh, Warren has a series of articles about how healthy most of the mobile games companies are currently. Yeah, more bad, more bad news, everyone. So this week, uh, since our last podcast, there's been a huge bout of news around layoffs. So I'm going to touch on three significant ones um, briefly with some context for each. So the first one um, is an article from Kotaku talking about the layoffs at Unity. So uh, layoffs have afflicted Unity's offices around, across the globe. Sources tell Kotaku that pretty much every corner of the company has taken some sort of hit, but there's a concentration in the AI and engineering departments. 
Uh, on Blind, the anonymous messaging board used by employees in the tech industry, Unity staffers say that roughly 300 to 400 people have been let go, estimated about 4%, and layoffs are still ongoing. Um, yeah, that, so that's, that's the first one. And then up next, we have uh, Niantic, who is uh, laying, laying off up to 90 people uh, after the cancellation of four games. Um, so in an internal email, Niantic CEO John Henke said the company was facing a time of economic turmoil as justification for the cuts and cancellations, adding that more streamlining would need to be done. Cancelled projects include a Transformers game called Heavy Metal and Hamlet, which the company was making with the theatrical company Punch Drunk. Um, one more quote, we recently decided to stop production on some projects and reduce workforce by about 8% to focus on key priorities. Uh, of note, Niantic also uh, has done a lot of M&A in the last year. They acquired NZ, NZXR, 8th Wall, Loki, Haas, and Scaniverse. And then they also have note raised 300 million last November to build a quote unquote real world metaverse. So another major layoff on the gaming side and then saving probably the largest one uh, that has few areas of impact for last, AppLevin and Adjust lay off 12% of their workforce. This is from gameindustry.biz. Um, App, uh, AppLevin, uh, as a reminder, acquired Adjust, what, about a, about a year ago? It's a little longer, but yeah, I think that's yeah. about right. So Adjust is now a subsidiary there. Um, so the layoffs were confirmed by Ad Exchanger with a spokesperson telling publication it was a difficult and prudent decision. Um, Applevin said, uh, taking this proactive step, not unusual given the current macroeconomic climate, allows us to optimize our resources so we can continue to focus on innovation and increasing shareholder value. Um, so pretty crazy news all in one week. So we had 4% of Unity, 8% of Niantic, and 12% of the Applevin conglomerates. Um, we've been tracking the news here about just a general downturn in mobile market, both, both the revenue and valuations. Uh, no, you know, another sector that's been hit really hard in addition to, you know, crypto, which we're just touching on. And I think there's some commonly discussed factors here. You know, it's harder to fundraise, obviously, with lower valuations. Um, a lot of the industry struggled with adapting to the iOS privacy changes. Um, Andrew, you kind of got out of the mobile space since we last <laughs> talked to you. Uh, would love your, like, really candid take on, you know, what are, what are other factors that you think has led to this just like horrible uh, couple of seasons for the the mobile space? Yeah, I mean, I think unfortunately the um, you know the the discoverability and marketing side of the the mobile business has been you know severely you know depreciated, um, and uh, and its ability to to remain effective, um, but those that have really sophisticated engines internally and a lot of capital are able to weather uh, a lot of the storm, which make them a bit more powerful in, in this time. Um, but those that aren't that sophisticated um, are, uh, you know, they just don't have as many tricks to pull or, or, or users to play with um, and to figure out how to, how to you know, I hate using this frame, but it, it, it extract more value from. But what I mean by that is really retain them and provide more value to, right? But but when you don't have, you know, in, in the mobile industry right now, if you aren't, you know, you know, really deep from a from a you know understanding your customers and doing pretty advanced segmentation, retargeting, other forms of, um, you know, you know, really complex creative testing and and trying to understand how to to 
you know, bridge the gap and bring in more customers, you're, you're, you really don't have straws to pull at anymore. So you're going to be in pain, but overall, there's going to be a bit of a contraction in general because, you know, less discoverability leads to less risk tolerance, less risk toler tolerance means less innovation, less innovation means, you know, like less right. new product coming to market. It all just kind of, you know, general market contraction. So you're going to see that effect everyone in different ways. But I also want to just point out that this may be, uh, you know, I don't know how much people talk about this, but how does Niantic have 900 plus employees? I was going to say that. Do you have one game that works? <laughs> like, like, I mean, Pokemon Go, to be clear, is a really good game. But, oh, no, no. Like... It's, an, it's, an, it's an incredible, it was an incredible bellwether of, of mobile growth. Like no one is going to take anything away from Niantic's technology or Niantic's products. Um, I, you know, we can all agree Pokemon Go is an incredible product and they're obviously an incredible product developer, but 900 people for what is essentially R&D like around that central theme that hasn't worked since right? for a variety of reasons, let's say. Like, I don't even want to say it's like Niantic because I think they can obviously develop a product. Yeah, but, and they've done a bunch. They just haven't got any traction. Yeah, but it's because they keep going around the same mechanic over and over again. And it's obviously that that was a bit of its own lightning in a bottle. They should be doing other types of R&D if they want to have the team that they have, um, you know, and support that level of team or, you know, focus on the real long-term R&D and continue to generate value from uh, Pokemon Go and, 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 you know, like, you know, have that capital runway for when you are going to be the layer for the world metaverse, um, you know, if that's the dream. But, you know, either start making you know, products that are going to work on the platform or, or, or have less headcount in general. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the sort of the goal here, right? I mean, I think so. I, I agree with a lot of you said. I think Niantic, I don't really have much more to say there. I think the Niantic, Pokemon Go, Lightning in a Bottle, mechanics work really well with that IP, really powerful IP. The, the mechanics they developed probably work less well with basically every other IP in the world because just the mesh, it doesn't mesh as well. Fine, let's put that one aside. What I will say is on the podcast last week, I ca specifically called Unity and Apple Event out as ways to play the mobile space um, going forward. And it's pretty hilarious that they came and got like slaughtered uh, this week. That being said, I'm pretty, I'm pretty comfortable that I stand by those statements in the long term. And here's why. So just one, one thing really quickly. The fact that Unity is laying off engineering and AI engineers is wild to me every person in the universe is trying to hire as many ai engineers as they possibly can so and if you look back to what happened with the revenue shortfall last quarter where they had 100 million dollar uh basically revenue shortfall based on their their machine learning algorithms, it's clear they're like cleaning house because someone in that department made a huge huge mistake and so this i think and that has basically had downstream effects for the entire rest of the business that being said what i said last week and what i agree with today what i still believe today is that from a macroeconomic perspective, outside of Apple, there's no one who's better positioned to ride the tailwinds of mobile growth or mobile in general than Unity over the long term. It's specifically because they have a games development platform that is going to be increasingly used by more and more companies. And it's still a very small portion of their overall revenue driver. And so I think over time, that is a place where they have a, a, still a, a continued ability to expand. The other side of this is sort of looking at Apple 11. Apple 11 is basically the number, I think, basically one of the best operators in terms of digital advertising on focus on games marketing it has been for years now and they've been able to continue to to grow and continue to acquire a more diverse set of tools across various uh, technologies in mobile gaming um unity seems this unity layoff seems pretty reactive they had a really big mistake the apple event 
layoffs seem more proactive. And what I really believe is that that company, if there's anyone who's going to be able to operate games businesses in the short term, it's Apple because they have they're buying net they're they're net buyer of game companies today, and they have all the infrastructure and all the data that they need in order to continue to grow their own games and then continue to make money by selling the dream of other people to grow their games as well. And so I think both Apple Event and Unity, I have different theses, but I still think that they're very compelling long-term bets if you believe mobile is a big segment. And like, I don't see a world where mobile isn't a big segment. And the thing that we called out was like a lot of people, a lot of these companies are getting slaughtered. The sophisticated ones will survive. But what that's going to do is it's going to clear the cruff out and you'll have a few of these winners who are like super winners. And I think Apple Event specifically and Unity as well, long-term, I think will be some of those super winners. Anyway, that's my rant. Yeah, I, I'd like to <laughs> present a, my, a counter argument to, to some of that, Xander. I, I think, and, and Andrew, you alluded to some of this, but so much, uh, I think I think the, the reckoning that's happening in mobile right now is that so much of the industry was powered by unhealthy, unsustainable growth. Um, companies setting money on fire to grow top line revenues to show growth ahead of like some M&A goals or fundraising goals. And that era is over, I think, for the foreseeable future. And we're seeing the impacts of that all over, like the money losing game companies, a lot of them are shutting down or having, um, and I'm not speaking to, you know, specifically to these deals today, don't sue me, Apple Levin or uh, Niantic. But, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of money losing uh, game developers that are just shutting down or having massive layoffs or slashing ad spend. And the other side of that is the places that they were spending their money. You know, and, and so a lot of these ad networks are going to have the, the impact too, because all of those companies that were spending on unhealthy uh, growth, like that, that era is over for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, don't, I agree. But the thing is, Apple Levin still has all the pipes, all the data, all the mm -hmm. tools for retention, all tools for ad monetization that everybody uses. So if they can't use all that data and all that tooling to make their own games profitable, then like there's then everybody's gonna die, right? That's that's the reality. And I don't think Apple wants everyone to die. I think I think there's also another another issue that I think not, not a lot of folks uh, talk about, which is um, that uh, China, as a <laughs> development, uh, like as a development powerhouse, True. Uh, have set you know have, have really set their sights and, and capabilities on Western publishing and you know global publishing, and they're just so good at it. Yeah. Uh, and like, and they develop the quality levels of games that they develop, the types of games that they develop, the, 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 the massive teams that they can run, the, the publishing and, you know, ingenuity and rigor and the, just the speed and pace that they work at is just, they have an advantage over the rest of the world as a developer and publisher in the space. And they do take a big amount of, of mind share, especially on the core side, but even in casual uh, more and more. And um, yeah, you know, I think, I think that, that they're going to continue to, to grow uh, their market share uh, globally, uh, you know, uh, developers from China. Um, and, I, and I think that the West needs to somehow, you know, wake up to that a bit as well, if they're going to continue to compete at scale. Um, and it's, it's going to be, it's, it's another major factor because Earlier in the in the in the in the um, cycle for mobile, uh, China wasn't as good at publishing. Didn't know how to naturalize. Didn't know what type of games to make. And now they 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 they're faster at innovating and faster doing R and D. And they know how to make products that work in their endemic market. But they care less about that now. They care more about global revenue. Right. So you gave me a perfect segue to our next article, which is FCC commissioner on Apple call on Apple and Google to remove TikTok from their app stores. So uh, this is a CNN uh, business article. A quick uh, poll quote, a member of the federal 
Communications Commission is renewing calls for Apple and Google to remove TikTok from the App Store, citing national security concerns around TikTok's China-based parent company, ByteDance. FCC Commissioner Brandon Carr described ByteDance as beholden to the Chinese government and, quote, required by law to comply with to comply with Chinese government surveillance demands. Citing a recent BuzzFeed News report that ByteDance's Chinese staff have accessed U.S. TikTok user data on multiple occasions, Carr said the allegations show how TikTok is out of compliance with policies that both companies are required to, that every company is required to adhere to. Okay, so um, TikTok in response to this pointed to the fact that U.S. citizen data is held in U.S. servers or U.S. Oracle servers, but the physical location of a server has nothing to do with an engineer's ability to access the data by itself, right? So the fact that they're right. in a U.S. means means nothing. Um, and, you know, I think TikTok has the ability to, to operate in the U.S. without oversight is like kind of the most insane policy that the U.S. government participates in across the board. Uh, we have no idea how much data they're collecting. They have, but we do know they have basically the most effective interest discovery engine in the world. The Chinese version of TikTok what Douyin has constraints on what they show and how often it can be used. And TikTok does not, and it's controlled by the CCP. And then ByteDance isn't public, so we have no insight into how it operates. Uh, and on the flip side of this, US-based social media companies are banned in China. And so it's clear that the Chinese government sees these social media companies as an effective tool, and they use it on their population. They ban us from, it, from using it on their population, but they're happy to use it on our population. And this is like, people need to think about this as a concern. I mean, it's like one of the few things that Trump actually got right by yelling about this. So uh, what, do you, what do you guys think about this? I mean, it kind of goes back to what you were just saying a second ago, Andrew. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I personally think that, um... Um, you know, I mean, not to not to get, get too too uh, you know political uh, or, or or you know socio political here, but I would say that America is more of a business, you know, oriented society in which we will monetize whatever we can if it is monetizable, whereas China has more of a long term view of its culture in a lot of ways, um, and so I believe that our government is going to be more lax on how the freedom of monetization can occur within the United States, where China is going to have its own set of, you know, you know, self-instituted goals that drive how it generates or monetize, how it monetizes, uh, you know, or what's allowed to monetize its citizens um, and, and what needs to be in line with its um, societal or cultural kind of goals and imperatives, right? And therefore you get a real bifurcation of, you know, of, of what's allowed in, in the United States versus we don't really have a very strong government angle being like, no, 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 no. Our people need to sleep. They need to be edu educated this way. They need to be like helped this way. We don't have that type of support in America. It's more about monetization. And that's not, I'm not trying to say that politically. It's just factually accurate right? actually <laughs> accurate in terms of the way in which the citizenry is viewed and monetized um so so you get that that's that's you just get that situation occurring the exact way that it's that's playing out yeah and i mean warren do you have thoughts here I have, I have thoughts but go ahead i mean at the end of the day i'm not notably happier when it's american corporations that are harvesting <laughs> my data and watching everything i'm doing like i would rather you know it was neither probably, but then from a, from a UA perspective, my selfish view here is please don't kill TikTok as a UA channel. It's been so frigging good the last, uh, the last year or two. It's just been like the most notable and 
emerging channel. Um, so yeah, it's also just a self- great content channel. It's just a great yeah, content yeah. channel. Like they're, they're, it's really good, and the content on it is good. And like yeah. it's good. It's a good product. It's a good product, and the, and the right. content creators are good creators, and it's a good UA outlet. Like it's it's good in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, yeah, I agree. I had to delete it because I realized I had one use it one week for eight hours one week, and I was like, okay, that is ridiculous. We're just no no more no more. Um, I mean, we're not going to go. I don't think I want to go super deep into the politics of this. Uh, it does seem like someone's asleep at the wheel, though. And this, like, this this isn't healthy for society long term. It's like you need to have regulations of, over your tech companies, and if it's out of your jurisdiction, you can't regulate them, and that's dangerous. And we can just leave it there, I think. Um, all right, so let's pivot to our main section. Um, we're calling everything about DAOs. <laughs> Maybe we'll come up with a better term about that. So Andrew, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, what is Strider DAO, what you do there. And if you want to throw in some Yield Guild games at the end, feel free to do that as well. Sure, yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have been in games for 22 years now. I started uh, when I was 20, um, working in, um, you know, like, Basically, Take Two Interactive was like, "Oh my God, there are people talking about our games on the internet," uh, and I and I was one of those people talking about their games on the internet, uh, and I tried to get a job with them, and I did, um, and I started working in uh, marketing and community, um, and you know, Take Two, Atari, Electronic Arts. Um, uh, I I you know was part of franchise development as well at Electronic Arts and got to work on. Uh, launching and building the uh, Dead Space franchise from the ground up, which with, which was absolutely awesome. Um, and um, I eventually went into free-to-play product management. Uh, at the time, wasn't great at EA, um, and um, left to go to a Facebook game, uh, Facebook Canvas games company called Lalaps that had a hit called Ravenwood Fair, and then left there after the Facebook platform was depreciated to go to Tinyco, where I helped run the um, studio in partnership with the CEO built teams, um, you know, did product strategy and product green light, even game directed uh, part of the um, uh, Harry Potter Hogwarts mystery game, which is still top 150 top grossing game like six years later. Um, I, um, you know, that's where I actually met one of the co-founders of Strider uh, and our, our chief product officer, Mike Brosman, because he actually, he did the hard work on the Harry right. Potter project. Um, I mean, I did the hard work too, but, you know, getting the project, but landing the project was, 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 was him, uh, which is which is great. Um, I then did um, some stuff in HTML5, fell down the crypto rabbit hole of Bitcoin, Bitcoin class of 2017. Um, you know, lost a lot of money, made made a lot of it back, uh, if not a bit of profit. Um, and um, you know, then joined Andreessen Horowitz and helped build their their gaming network and 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 help the kind of investment team kind of get moving in the game space. Um, I was there for two years, did some M&A stuff. And then once again, you know, like I, I was always, my heart was always near crypto. And I started seeing a lot of changes happen in the technology and in the communities and in the behaviors and said, okay, like this is where I want to build and already had a lot of ideas and got with a couple of my, my, my compatriots from the past. And we put together Strider. Cool. Well, so for the, you know, layperson uh, who doesn't know, can you explain what Strider is? Yeah, so Strider builds tools that are based in Web3 so that communities can build IP together and actually be rewarded for all of their decentralized contributions toward building that IP. Andrew, could you give an example of like what one of the tools Strider is building and, and how a creator would, would use it? Sure. 
So we're trying to lower the barrier to entry for what it means to be a creator. Right now, a lot of people need to self-select as a writer or animator or artist. Um, but what we want to do is essentially do what we did really well at TinyCo is create interactive fiction. Um, but as part of that interactive fiction flow, you actually get submission points uh, where you as a user immersed in that fiction get to then say the motivations of a character, the name of a character, or the what happened in a certain place or the backstory of a certain place. Um, so it contextualizes that moment of contribution. So now you, you have a broader base of people that can participate uh, and they understand the rewards at the moment of participation that they are going to get uh, for participating and if their content is canonized. Um, so that's one piece of the puzzle. How actually voting occurs and how canonization and reward occurs is another part of the puzzle, which is what makes DAOs so freaking cool. Yeah, so you touched on, I, I do I think at some point want to loop back to the core game mechanics, but I think we need to do some like table setting of like, what is a DAO and why choose DAO over a different type of legal entity to run your business? Yes. So yeah, any questions or I could just dive into what a DAO is? I think is. just start start there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. And what that means is it's essentially an entirely digital um you know, organization that is set by a base of blockchain protocols that keep the transparent data of what is happening vis-a-vis -vis that organization um, and the treasury that manages the actions of that, that organization in a way that actually can function, um, you know, with a variety of decentralized stakeholders. So there's no board, there's no VP of anything, there's no you know, there, there, there's order sets and committees and other things that, that allow for richer, um, you know, guardrails for how people work together, but there isn't a traditional kind of corporate hierarchy or other type of hierarchy. Um, it's about work efficacy. Interesting, right. Warren, do you have, we can say that? And I would say yeah, that was... the, just what, real quick, just I will also say that the three pieces that are really important for a DAO are the um, the, to the, the tokens and or NFTs that, that run DAO voting and participation, the treasury that holds the uh, funds um, and or distributes funds, and the, uh, the ability to track on-chain behavior uh, and, and reputation uh, within a DAO are probably the three biggest. But, but there are DAOs that function with off-chain voting and just have treasury and um, tokens that leverage kind of the the, the power of uh, platform participation. Yeah, Andrew, I wanted to unpack a little bit and you can use use Strider here or just other DAOs that you're familiar with of just, uh, so if someone takes, it takes a, a job at a DAO, like what's going, what's going to feel, like what are the parallels with, you know, versus working for like a traditional corporation and, what, and what's going to feel really different about the day-to-day? The -day? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends really on the DAO. So there are DAOs that start much more centralized and feel probably more like a traditional company as they open up and become more and more decentralized. There are also ones that have started completely decentralized that have scaled incredibly and actually stayed as a functioning uh, decentralized organization. It depends what level of decentralization uh, that your 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 the, the organization is in at the state of its 
scaling and how controlled that decentralization is will, will be the feel differently. But I will tell you, no matter what type of uh, DAO that you are in that's being built, the uh, philosophies that govern the way that the people work in the organization at the onset are already extraordinarily different than working at a corporation. Because when you're working at, at a, a standard corporation, the philosophies that are even that are guiding it um, are all about value accrual from a direct competitive and um, specific set of like ownership of information and value, right? That is all about accruing that value and that the value accrual is going to be to shareholders in this very, the incentives get very squeezed and interesting over the, the, the ways that those hierarchies are built out. And, and I will say that there's weird and interesting things about the way that DAOs are built out, not to say that one is essentially better than the other, but I would say that the, the big difference is that everyone is thinking about value accrual for your network, value right. accrual for the contributors, val value accrual for your partners, value accrual for people that are going to build off of and create composable elements from the things that you're building. It's about network value, not my own value, right? right. So you, it's, it's, it's community management 101 brought into a much broader and financialized context, which is you have to give a shit about the people in your community. You have to mm -hmm. give a shit about the people in your network and you have to want to see them win actually and balance their the real incentives and the scale of incentives and their the true value and their actual experience working with you. So it is much more open and transparent and much more vulnerable. Yeah, that's that's all super helpful. I wonder if maybe you could give an example of something in your own work that you've seen work uh, either in you know IGG or Strider that you've seen work in a DAO situation where it's just like, oh yeah, we could never do this in like a traditional corporate structure or or this works much better in a, in a, in a DAO structure. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and you know, it's it's really it's this is going to be a really weird thing to talk about because because the space is still building and growing. Mm -hmm. um, that like a lot of positives can also have negative repercussions, right? Like there's a lot that's being learned right now and optimized right now. But I will say that like there is a higher higher form factor of trust in general between everyone working in DAOs and in between DAOs. Like everyone is supporting each other's growth and they are doing it at a much faster rate than is even possible in starting a, a normal startup because everyone is looking to create network effects. So what ends up happening is in some cases, you're even getting folks supporting each other on handshakes, right? that has, you know, and they, they set some like mild parameters for how the relationship and value exchange is gonna work, but they end up just going, they end up just moving, right? right? And there's an upside to that and a downside to that. The upside to that is there's more trust, there's more innate kind of shareability of upside and support. And therefore like different people can come together to create value together way faster, way more flexibly without the red tape and bullshit that comes along with being in a in a closed hierarchy, and and um, and the way that incentives work. Also, uh, hopefully, you know, agreements have been created and aren't just handshakes. But the flexibility in how value is created 
is inherently more valuable and there is more trust and kind of openness. And I, you know, I say vulnerability and what I mean by vulnerability is not the bad type of vulnerability, but I, I think the good type of vulnerability, which is more openness, more showing each other, more teaching each other, more, you know, supporting each other. And to me, I enjoy it because right. I, I, you know, I could, I could stop there. I could go on, on the last piece, which is I think work incentives, which for me is the biggest, the biggest one out of all of them. And it's the thing that hindered me in, in success in, in larger corporate life, which is um, a lot of times the person that is giving you work or that is managing your work, uh, they're there just because. Uh, and um, they're not smarter. They're not better. They're usually hoarding information right. and they're usually hoarding uh, and guide and gaining your ability to be more effective and to actually right. learn and grow within your position. And it's because they're incentivized to do that in a hierarchical um, uh, situation. But in a, in a DAO situation, an open situation, what you're really incentivized by is, do, is, is your work good? Are you getting more work? Are people giving you more work, right? right? Are, are you, are, and, and, and that, and then, you know, if you want qualitative uh, data, you could just talk to someone and they'll be like, oh yeah, I work with that person. They're amazing, right? Because they've seen that that person has accrued a lot of work. Okay, so to keep getting work, right? Uh, they're going to get less work if people are like, yeah, don't work with them. That person's shit, right? Um, but, but we don't worry about the, the qualitative as much. We worry about like getting the work done. How do we get more work to more people? How do we get out of the way more? Uh, that is what matters. And I think that's a way more effective of working and way more effective for mental health as well. So um, one thing you talked about that I have sort of question about is like this, the ethos. I mean, that's really the, the core of what you're describing is this ethos in DAO. And I wonder if that's a function of the small group of people who are currently working in that ecosystem more so than a function of, I mean, so I guess, do you believe that to be the case? Is it because people who are DAO early adopters so, are all so believing? Sort of, a, sort of a positive selection bias of like yeah. the kind of people that gravitate towards the space, like almost by definition, make it, make it a more exciting I more collaborative. I think it's a huge part of it. I think it's a huge part of it. The, the people that are self-selecting, the people that are jumping in and building right now are people that want that. They want more open, you know, and more frictionless and more effective forms of work. Uh, and, 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 and the, the jury is still out on overall value creation. Obviously I couldn't say mm -hmm. that a DAO is, is a better, more effective way of generating uh, financial and right. uh, work value than a hierarchy. I can't say that to you. I just know that it works better for me. And I've seen the ways in which it works better for a lot of people and the amazing things that have come from it in a very short period of time. Right. That, that makes, I mean, I think the answer is probably going to be, it's going to depend on the, the DAO or versus the company and the product and the goal they're trying to accomplish. Right. I don't yeah. think there's going to be an objectively better one. I think, I think it's going to come down to the, the same thing that it always comes down to, which is culture. Right. Uh, which is what is the culture that is created? What are the behaviors that are permeated, incentivized, and rewarded? And and do the people that are creating this actually want to see things grow, thrive, and live, as opposed to be strangled uh, right. and uh, die or somewhere in the middle? Right. So, right. Uh, yeah. No one's no one's joining a DAO because they're trying to maximize their next twelve months' salary. Right. They're joining because they want to break some shit. They want to have a new structure, higher level of ownership and accountability. Um, and just kind of get, get weird too. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think, but, but I, I do think that long-term 
the ways in which like uh, value or even salary accrual can work in a DAO. Uh, like there's models for how it can scale and work mm -hmm. at scale in a really effective way, but it's just that the scale isn't there yet. So, you know, uh, but hopefully one day. Do, do you want to talk a little bit about what those models are that you've seen that work so far? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the, the, there's there's some very basic work DAO models that I think are really effective that essentially act as a uh, definitely going to end up offending some people as I go through this part uh, that <laughs> that um, that are um, really interesting, right? And um, and these are essentially two sided marketplaces um, where uh, there is a token in the center of a marketplace and that governs the posting of quests or bounties uh, or work, you know, essentially, however you want to frame it or whatever lore you want to put around it. It is fun to put lore around it, though, I will say. Sure. Um, and the, the, then obviously the token accrual of people doing work for those people. So let's say it's an engineering guild or it's a design guild, right? And they have a token and the bounty providers are providing X amount of money in order to increase their visibility within the bounty system. Right. Um, and then there's a bunch of amazing workers, right? And those workers are either core in that network and own a lot of that token already, or they own a little bit, or they're on the outside and they have a skill set. They now, uh, as a DAO, can look at the projects and go, oh, okay, we know we need about six people. We need this complement to do this work. Either those individuals are going to do that themselves, they're going to go get the work and 90% of the value of that work in stable coins, in other tokens that act as upside um, are going to go to the individuals doing the work. The other 10% is gonna to go to the treasury because the treasury then as a, as, a, as a person in the DAO can then vote on the usages of that treasury, whether it's general distributions or building more infrastructure to actually be more effective workers. Um, so, so that's the basic, but now it gets very interesting when you then throw into a new form of recruiting. So now mm -hmm. instead of a recruiter being someone that you just hire that's on container that like, or retainer or, or, or contingency, uh, managing a network that is very broad and poking people on LinkedIn and whatnot. If you think and imagine about this at scale, if there's a large enough pool of, of folks in a large enough pools, let's say there's pools everywhere, there are these work DAOs, they're all pools of talent, and there are people that are in multiple pools, right? What a recruiter then has to do is not, uh, is just go within those pools and pitch projects to folks. And then when they go back for that bounty, um, you know, now the splits change and now 80% goes to the workers, 10% goes to that manager of the project that has brought the talent pool together and the other 10% goes to the treasury where the bounty exists. So that is a very basic work down model. Mm -hmm. And you can see how at scale, an individual that has skills could accrue a variety of not just stables, but upside in a variety of projects by providing work. And it sounds like one kind of key, um, key benefit of the structure when it works out is uh, highly merit-based uh, compensation systems that, you know, uh, we we all know the data on you know like female salary rates versus versus men, um, and uh, I'm I'm curious if, if I see you nodding, Andrew. Like, do you, do you agree that that's that's kind of one key benefit of this model? 
Yeah, this is where I, I was. I said I was going to start probably like bothering people. Is that like when you get to a a, a more anonymized? Also, I think there's mm -hmm. a, again pluses and benefits to anonymization. But when you get to a a wallet or a wallet being a profile that is static, I don't care if it's anonymized or not. We can track everything that that person has ever contributed to, and we can track what and they they want to accrue value in in one place. They don't want to keep creating new wallets for projects because they're not going to know how to accrue reputation then, right? So they're incentivized to accrue reputation appropriately. And then that means that you can start to break down some of the geographic and demographic problems with compensation because you can create a more standardized set of compensation of what, do, what does X work, uh, what does X work value? What is the value of X work? versus who is valued for X work, right. uh, no matter where they are in the world or, or who they are. And I think that is way more effective and is more based on work output, efficacy of work, and whether those people are reliable rather than any other factor that goes into human computation of value setting. Right. Um, and I think that is another thing that I think is awesome to break. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, on the upside, that seems like a very compelling uh, argument. I do want to do a pivot because I have I have sort of a tactical question that I've been trying to get an answer to for a thousand years, and we have you here, so I'm going to ask you. Which is, what is the like? What is the relationship between traditional legal entities and DAOs? Can DAOs be recognized as traditional legal entities? I know there's like some models for how this can work, but like, you know, are they regulated? How can they be regulated? Are people going to try and regulate them? You know, where, do they have jurisdiction? Sort of, can you talk a little bit about that whole framework? Yeah, I mean, I think it's best to think about these things in terms of not like, are they going to be regulated or aren't they going to be regulated? Or, uh, you know, I would just say that what's, what, what matters the most is what regulation exists today and are you being compliant within that regulation? And right now there is a set of regulation that a set of regulations that uh, have been provided by the jurisdiction that we're in, which is the United States of America. There's also different regulations globally because not everyone has come to a consensus on how this is regulated. And, and even in, in normal financial and work markets, there are different regulations for work in different places. So I think it's very important that everyone thinks about this as a jurisdictional or geographic regulatory conversation. Uh, and then a kind of set, you know, like a digital space uh, regulatory conversation, if there ends up being any type of standardization when you're in this digital space or that digital space in which rules can be created. Like if I'm playing Roblox, I have to, I have to be part of their, you know, toss and their privacy policy and et cetera, et cetera. Like what regulations do you as a DAO, a DAO do you create uh, or create it as part of the government? So there's a variety of levels of, of uh, which is complex, complex, right? There's a variety of levels of, of regula regulation, but I would say that it's important that you as a, a creator of a DAO or a DAO that has grown, that you take the appropriate steps to be regulatorily compliant in whatever geographies you are operating in um, as, a, as a business or as an entity. Um, and, um, and that you are, also you are also compliant from a taxation perspective and that you ensure that your users are compliant both from a uh, regulatory and taxation perspective. You can't 
operate in a way where you can ensure that every one of your users is paying their taxes and whatever, but you can say, hey, these are the guidelines here and you should adhere to them, but it's more important that you can learn about and provide some type of liability protection and also be regulatory and tax compliant. Um, and yeah. we could dive into the details of all of that, but that would be like four podcast series on, you know, Dow entity, uh, you know, regu regulatory compliance and tax compliance. Yeah, I, I would. I am curious, but I don't think we have enough time. Um, I did have one thing that I wanted to touch on briefly, which is YGG, Yield Guild Games, for those who don't know. It's like, they're basically gaming guilds are entirely new native, Web3 native distribution and discovery channel is how I've sort of been thinking about them. Can you explain, we have running a long time, so fairly briefly about what, what Yield Guild Games is and what are the implications for entities like Yield Guild Games in the gaming space going forward? Yeah, so um, you know, uh, with Strider, uh, we do a lot of work with with YGG, and um, you know, I'm I'm I work with the team a lot on on on, on new initiatives. Um, so, you know, it's it, it's it's pretty been amazing to be part of a DAO at scale um, and see how they've done business and some of the things they've run into, and um, you know, they've I think they've managed themselves through these last two cycles incredibly well, um, and you know, have an enormous community, which is a very high value community if you think about the value that they contribute to the ecosystem at scale, right? So, you know, they have, there's there's not a ton, uh, you know, there's not, it's not an enormous uh, market by uh, users. Um, and to have a bunch of users that provide a ton of value like YGG does globally um, uh, is pretty amazing. So I think, you know, how they, they how YGG operates going forward is going to be um, you, you know, like, I don't think it's like insane changes, right? They're running a large community of gamers and they're providing value to that community. Um, they, the way that they have um, grown is really interesting too, from a decentralized perspective in that they haven't chosen to like create departments uh, that operate in new geographies, but actually have new organizations created that new guilds. Yeah, the new guilds created that are that are sub DAOs that are um, part of the overall network and accrue value uh, overall within the network. And those have been in India and Latin America and Brazil um, and um, in Southeast Asia. And you know more more are coming as well. Um, and so all in these guilds have to not just provide asset value right to their treasury but also value to the users um, in both providing assets or opportunities or uh, you know financial leverage within games uh, going forward and i think that what you're going to see uh, i think one of the bigger shifts that you're going to see is how guilds bring their communities uh, to new games and new game opportunities and how value is accrued um, you know before it was you know, essentially only in asset ownership and asset and yield creation from the user base. I think now you're going to see a lot more in terms of what feels like um, part, you know, more of a partnership of like, we are supporting this game together as a guild because it is awesome. We believe in its long-term value and therefore we're going to bring the guild in to play and to onboard and to build the value of this, this game. Which is really, I know that sounds weird because you're like, oh, that sounds a little bit like user acquisition, but no. User acquisition is, you know, traditional user acquisition is there's a media component in which 
a user sees a message and that message brings that individual user that will exist alongside the guild model, which is we're bring we are all in as a guild and a user base to this game because we believe in the long-term viability and because we believe we're going to accrue value as a player base coming to this game. Um, and I think that is a very different media model if you think about it, because it's more about long-term value accruing to the players because they understand their value as players in the game. Right. Well, I have a lot more I'd like to ask about that, but we are very nearly at time. So I think we're going to wrap our main interview and go to our last section, which is app of the week. So uh, well, I guess I'll start with Warren. Warren, do you have an app this week? Yes, mine is in the category of super, super niche. Um, but uh, I was thinking of, of Andrew for this one. So last week I did my first like in-person Magic the Gathering gaming basically since, since COVID. Oh, um, congratulations. Yeah, so I uh, I I had I, my my app this week is the Magic the Gathering companion app, um, and so it only took what thirty years or so, but um, the Wizards of the Coast finally figured out how to actually use some amount of technology to run Magic tournaments, uh, and so I went to a cool game shop in Philly and uh, played an in-person tournament. I won, no big deal. Um, <laughs> don't need to mention that. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's a nice kind of like quality of life improvement with the Magic the Gathering companion app. It basically lets you uh, input a code for the tournament you're participating in and you can just it logs the results runs the tournament from there you can also use it for tournaments or games that you're running from home um and this is much better than the old way which is basically like a crowd of sweaty nerds all just hovering around trying to turn in a slip of paper or hovering around like a post with a piece of paper with their matches on it and uh congratulations to uh wizards of the coast for yeah that sounds that, 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 that sound like a much better user experience wow yeah, I'll keep it in mind next time I decide to go play Magic Tournament, which I haven't done since my job interview at Update. I used, yeah, I used to play at Eudaimonia in Oakland, and it was oh, yeah. exactly what you described. And I was yep. just like, yeah, it was it was really... The bathroom there is a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. Okay, well, this is making great podcast content. Uh, Andrew, did you bring it up this week? Uh, yeah, so uh, interestingly, because I'm working in the realm of, of, you know, kind of IP building and tool sets... Um, around IP building, I have somehow ended up back in uh, episodes, uh, the app, uh, and I'm playing that again, and it is absolutely hilarious to be back in that app. Um, but, you know, still, you know, love the tool set that they created. Also playing Dorian um, and looking at the tools that they've been building. Um, you know, Julia Palatowska, um, she, um, you know, and, and a bunch, and actually people I worked with at TinyCo too, I've uh, been building an amazing app and ecosystem there um, and been playing Dorian. And then on, on the other side, I've been playing Resident Evil The Village, which is absolutely incredible. I don't know who reviewed that as a mediocre game. You got to love horror and you got to love Resident Evil, but man, is it fun. Uh, and that's what I've been playing this week. It's quite a good awesome. recommendation, a good suite of recommendations for a varied audience. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Xander, what, what do you got this week? So uh, it's that time of year again, which is the danger of the Steam sale. And so what I've ended up doing oh. over the last couple of weeks or last week or so is just buying like eight games um, for like 70% off. Um, and one of the weird little indie games that I found that I really like, it's right, right up my alley, is one called Do Not Feed the Monkeys. Um, they call it Digital Voyeurism Simulator. Basically, it's going to be really hard to describe in a very short sentence. But basically, uh, you're spying on people and committing crimes uh, for, in uh, as a in a like multi-level multi marketing Ponzi scheme. 
I can't really describe it in a short term. Sounds fantastic. Go check it out. It's really, really, really unique, really, really interesting. Uh, do not feed the monkeys. Okay, we are at time. Thank you so much for coming back, Andrew, to talk to us about all, everything DAO. If someone wants to get a hold of you or learn more about Strider, how can they do that? Yeah, they could go to uh, me on Twitter at, at farming underscore XP, uh, like experience points, um, or uh, you know, go to the strider.xyz uh, website, uh, can find us there or on our Discord, which you can link to via um, you know, strider underscore DAO, D-A-O on Twitter as well. Um, yeah, and find us there. And you know, thanks for having me. And I feel like we could do a whole segment just on actually just start a DAO podcast. This is too much to talk about. Well, yeah, I think we're gonna need to do another one. It'll probably be a little ways out, but we'll do yeah, we'll yeah, some more. Topic over and over again. Uh, um cool. Warren, uh, do you want to take us out? Yeah, Andrew, thank you so much for uh, joining us again today and enshrining yourselves in the halls of Uptick History as our first repeat guest. Really stoked to see uh, what you guys are building at Strider and looking forward to see how, how the doubt evolves over time. Thanks so, so uh, of course, as, as always, the podcast was brought to you by the folks here at Uptick. So here at Uptick, we do all things gaming growth. Uh, we have our own technology platform for all things growth marketing automation around optimizing ad campaigns, managing creative assets, optimizing your app store. We basically just build the cool shit that we want to use as marketers. And uh, then we also provide the team to help you do this stuff if you need good people to help you do this stuff. So uh, if you want to learn more about Uptick, just reach us at uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Talk soon.